Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood, the highly customary pair of guests today, though with more thematic unity than usual. The economist Francisco Perez will talk about the CFA franc, a currency used by 14 countries in Africa that is a strange holdover from the days when France was their colonial master. And the journalist Caitlin Chandler will talk about the coup in Niger, not entirely coincidentally one of those CFA franc countries. She will talk specifically about U.S. security interests in that country and its neighbors. Before proceeding, a little correction to last week's show. My guest, Sarah goldrick Robb is founder of the Hope Center for College, Community, and Justice. I left the word college out of the intro. Sorry. I've been meaning for a long time to do a segment on the CFA franc, a currency shared by 14 African countries, a holdover from the colonial days with no analog anywhere else in the world. I'm finally doing it. We'll hear in more detail what it's all about from Francisco Perez in a moment. Before that, let me say a few words about currencies in general. Money occupies a strange role in economics. In some schools of thought, it's almost trivial, a convenience, but not terribly significant in itself. In other schools, it's almighty. Fix the currency, maybe by printing lots of it, and the rest of the economic arrangement will fall into a better place. Or as Keynes put it in his treatise on money, there is a common element in the theories of nearly all monetary heretics. Their theories of money and credit are alike in supposing that in some way the banks can furnish all the real resources which manufacture and trade can reasonably require without any real cost to anyone. I think both these extremes are wrong. Tight money, high interest rates restricting the supply of new credit, can depress economic growth, but loose money can't necessarily encourage prosperity. It often just encourages inflation. For actual prosperity, you need real physical investment in infrastructure and machinery and social investment in education and health things that capitalism isn't known for spontaneously volunteering. Simply dropping the CFA franc for a new monetary arrangement might have symbolic value as an anti-colonial gesture, but I'm skeptical that its material impact would be all that profound on its own. Enough of me. Let's hear what Francisco Perez has to say. He's a senior economist with the Center for Economic Democracy and assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah. He was on this show a few months ago to talk about the Center's Economics for Emancipation popular education project. I apologize for the occasional eruptions of toddler in the background, but such are the challenges of childcare in America. Francisco Perez. The CFA is a remarkable thing that's persisted for decades and decades. First of all, what is it? What does CFA stand for? How many countries are in it? And say something about the relation of it to France. The CFA franc uh, originally stood for Colonie Française d'Afrique, French African colonies. It was eventually renamed at independence so that the the acronym stayed the same, although CFA, I think, means French African Community. So it's a monetary union. There's 14 countries in, in West and Central Africa that use this currency. It's technically divided into two regional currency unions, which reflected the original colonial division uh, the French made of Africa. So the countries of French West Africa are now grouped into the into the West African Franc. So those are Benin, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Guinea-Bissau, uh, Mali, Niger, Senegal, and Togo. Their regional central bank is based in Dakar in Senegal. Then there's a central African franc, which reflected the old French Equatorial Africa, which includes Cameroon, Central African Republic, Chad, uh, Congo, Brazzaville, Equatorial Guinea, and Gabon. And their regional central bank is in Cameroon, it's in Yaoundé. These 14 countries share the same currency. They're technically two different ones, but they trade at the same value to each other. And they've been pegged to the French franc uh, since they were created at the end of World War II. And then since the euro was created to the euro. Uh, And that exchange rate has been changed exactly once between 1948 and present in in 1994. So it's uh, a currency union that also has a fixed exchange rate to the French franc, not the euro. Currencies are political institutions as well as purely economic ones. What kind of relationship to France is embedded in this currency? I used to live in Senegal and ask myself why, in a world where the French franc no longer exists, does the colonial African franc still does, right? So that's what led me on this journey. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with the very, uh, let's say, special relationship between France and its former colonies. 
the French basically never really went away. Unlike the British or the Portuguese or the Belgians, who either did not want to maintain ties to their former colonies or could not, uh, in the case of the Portuguese, the French uh, have maintained a very tight sphere of influence in the region. So, you know, the CFA franc we can analyze as an economic arrangement, as, you know, as a fixed exchange rate regime, as a monetary union. But it is, you know, in my opinion, kind of a financial and monetary counterpart to these tight political, military and diplomatic links between France and its and its former colonies in French and uh, in, in West and Central Africa. They're interested on both sides. They've kept this relationship tight, right? Part of the arguments that I that I make in in a, in a paper I've written about this is it's wrong to look at this only from the French side, right? Much of the scholarly literature, much of the even the activists um, in the region and in, and in France think of sort of the French as omnipotent. They um, are driving this bus, and absolutely there is an asymmetry of power. The French are the more powerful party economically, militarily, politically, but there is a actual African elite that does benefit from having this arrangement. Having a fixed exchange rate, especially one set um, at an arguably you know, very high level that, that leads to overvaluation, makes it possible to, one, import things very cheaply. The more money you have in these places, the more you're interested in importing, uh, especially luxury goods from, from abroad, from Europe particularly. And you know, it also part of this arrangement is all of these countries have agreed to let money flow, flow freely between themselves and uh, France uh, and now the Eurozone. You can always get your money out of Africa and into euros, right? Which is a very, con- which is very convenient for you if you um, have a lot of money you want to hide or protect from your government. And the French made a, quite an effort to maintain this uh, this relationship over the decades, haven't they? These African elites face a carrot and a stick. So the carrot is you have a very stable exchange rate, one that allows you to import luxury goods uh, quite cheaply that allows you to vacation in Europe um, because your money basically never loses its value. I should also add one of the particular things that really makes the CFA special is what the French call the convertibility guarantee, which is the French treasury, not the, the Bank of France and not the European Central Bank, very importantly, guarantees the exchange rate. All right, right. So the, for those of you who know how this stuff works, usually if a country wants to peg its exchange rate to that of another country, it has to have enough of that currency, right? If you peg to the dollar, then you need to have dollars in your central bank account. Uh, if you peg to the euro, then you need to have enough euros. In this case, the French treasury says, if one of these two regional central banks in Dakar or Yaoundé runs out of euros, we will step in and convert euros for CFA at the, at the agreed upon fixed exchange rate, right? So that is the carrot, right? Is you have an incredibly stable currency. The stick, of course, is if you try to leave the French sphere of influence, you are likely to face French hostility. And many of these governments that have tried to leave or have threatened to leave have been overthrown. Some governments have left, but you know, especially at the beginning of this arrangement when it was being negotiated at independence, which you know, I, I should remind people, virtually every other country that decolonized in the, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in, in Africa or Asia very quickly created its own currency. These former French colonies in Francophone Africa are an anomaly, decided to maintain their old colonial currency, partly because of the carrot of this convertibility guarantee, uh, and then also the stick of if you try if you tried to leave this arrangement, bad things will happen. Um, so you know, when these were being negotiated in the early 60s, we saw the government of guinea Conakry did vote to leave the French community and was punished, um, although Sekouture's regime was able to survive for decades after. But, you know, we see the case in Mali, for example, where another radical nationalist leader, Modi Boketa, tried to negotiate a more flexible arrangement with the French first. And then when that failed, left and created his own currency, was quickly overthrown, uh, died in prison a few years after that. Uh, and similarly in Togo, which was originally a German colony and had sort of fewer ties to France, the independence leader there, Silvanus Olympio also tried to leave, create his own currency, and was murdered and overthrown within months. And then periodic attempts later on, you know, most notably in the 1980s by, by Thomas Sankara and Burkina Faso, which, again, because of the recent coup is much in the news, also tried to stand up to the French and was quickly overthrown by and you know replaced by his former right-hand man, uh, who then went on to rule the country for almost 30 years after that. So not easy to leave. They'll overthrow you, they'll kill you. Um, but they also, uh, in one country, right, they distributed uh, counterfeit bills? Yeah, so that was in Guinea where they, in 1958, the French held a referendum where they asked everyone of the former colonies, do you want to stay part of, you know, what was essentially like a French commonwealth 
or do you want immediate independence? The Ghanaians voted overwhelmingly for immediate independence, and the French response was quite vindictive. You know, the French government pulled out the telephone lines and you know, took, took all the, the office equipment, tried to make things as difficult for the new government as possible, and including trying to sabotage them by flooding the country with counterfeit bills uh, and, and creating hyperinflation that way. What is the interest of France in keeping this arrangement? Uh, do they make money on it? Is it some kind of colonial prestige? You know, what, what are the French motives? A lot of the scholarly literature focuses on this. And there's two camps. So there's some people, kind of the traditional Marxist approach is, you know, this creates a, a private hunting ground for French capital in West and Central Africa. French corporations own and control many of the most important economic sectors. All the cell phone companies are owned by, by French investors. Ports and railways are run by French investors. Um, many of the big export-import businesses, right? So um, there's sort of that idea that it, you know what's what's in it for the French is very purely kind of economic. This ties these countries closer to the French economy. There's others who argue, you know, these are all very small, poor countries. Of the 14 members, several of them are among the poorest countries in the world, right? So there, you know, people argue what what possible economic interest could there be? So they they argue the. The point is sort of purely political. These are the kind of the delusions of grandeur of a middle-ranking power or declining world power that wants to hold on to the idea that it is still kind of a world power. France is one of the few countries that has, you know, military bases outside of its own country that has foreign military bases that allows it to argue for for it to maintain a seat as uh, one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. Right? It ends up kind of being the gendarme de l'Afrique, right? Kind of Africa's policeman and can kind of justify its role that way. I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's a mix, uh, obviously, of the two, and it depends on the specific time and place. Sometimes those two can coincide, right? So you can think of a country like Gabon in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, where it is an oil-producing country, right? Oil is a, is a strategic military resource. It's also quite profitable most of the time, right? So you can see how those two uh, can converge, and then you can see other moments where um, you know, it's harder to see a an economic motive or what exactly the political motive might be, right? So I think it's more complicated. There are some vested interests in France um, and in Africa, as I mentioned earlier, that benefit from this arrangement. And then it's also, you know, the games that, that uh, politicians and statesmen like to play, right? There's only so many countries in the world that you can dominate. This is still part of the of the chessboard. In your paper, towards the beginning in particular, you review the distinction between a couple of different kinds of imperialism, a territorial concept versus a capitalist concept. It's the first more of a real estate idea, the second more about social relations. Talk about that distinction and, and how it applies here. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was trying to get at in the earlier response, which is, you know, what attracted me to this beyond trying to, you know, understanding the, the situation in these countries and which, again, are among some of the poorest countries in the world and how to you know, express solidarity with the people there who are fighting for, for a better, more just future. You know, also trying to understand modern capitalist imperialism. So, you know, this is a debate even among Marxists. There are plenty of Marxists who will tell you, you know, imperialism kind of no longer exists. It was a 19th century, early 20th century phenomenon, and the world is very different. We live in a globalized economy with global value chains. And there's, you know, there is class oppression and class oppression spills over national borders, but there is nothing that we can kind of properly call imperialism because no one, you know, very few countries go out there and kind of plant their flags and try to annex uh, foreign territory anymore. I have been trying to understand what what exactly is sort of this, can we speak of a, of a capitalist form of imperialism that is informal, that operates in places where the flag, uh, the French flag or the American flag is no longer kind of flying. This distinction between capitalist and territorialist logics comes out of the work of Giovanni Arrighi, the, the famous Marxist sociologist. And he argues, you know, there's sort of the logic of territory, which is sort of the original imperialist logic that, that helps you understand the American annexation of Hawaii or the French annexation of Chad and Gabon, you know, or, you know, going back to the Romans um, invading, you know, Egypt uh, and, and extracting tribute uh, millennia ago, which is, you know, the world of governments, of states, of, of militaries trying to control territory. And then there is capitalist logic, right, which is we're trying to amass capital anywhere in the world, theoretically. Uh, and the two are different ways of thinking. We have a fixed amount of territory, right? There's only so many countries in the world. There's only so much land that you can conquer, right? If you think about uh, playing a game like Risk, <laughs> there's only so many pieces on the board. Whereas capital is, is technically infinite and limitless, right? You can continuously accumulate your capital. So trying to understand how these two, you know, and I Think of them in dialectical terms, right? They, they can be in tension. Uh, there's some times when you try to conquer a place that isn't very lucrative. There's times when you try to invest in a place that you cannot conquer. So, you know, think, for example, 
all the Western investments in a place like China, right, where maybe in the 19th or early 20th centuries, uh, a territorial uh, expansion on China's on Chinese land was possible. But now, um, you know, it would be very difficult. China, despite being you know, still a, a relatively poor country, is is a military power. Um, you can make similar arguments for India with the way that, that capitalists think, which is, you know, you can you theoretically live in a kind of borderless world, right? So trying to understand how those two can contradict each other, but also ultimately they are one thing. You know, the only states capable of conquering other territories are rich capitalist states, right? We're thinking of places like the United States, like France. Ultimately, the two kind of boil down to the same thing because none of the countries that are poor are really going to be able to conquer territory in, in that kind of classic uh, imperial sense. I'm speaking with Francisco Perez, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Utah. France's relationship to the CFA countries does seem like a bit of an anachronism. It absolutely is. I mean, I'm, I'm still amazed that, you know, independence for all of these countries came about in 1960, and it's still, you still see it, right? And, and it's, you know, it's not something that you see in other parts of Africa, even, right? Like, uh, I used to live in Sierra Leone. There's still cultural and political and economic ties to the British, but they're nowhere near as strong as the ties between, say, Senegal and France, uh, or Cote d'Ivoire and France. So it is really... A glass from the past, right? You have this thing was created, uh, the CFA Frank was created when Bretton Woods was signed, right? It is essentially a holdover from, you know, the end of World War II. Uh, and think about how many other things have changed since since 1945, when it was created, um, or since 1960 at independence, uh, or nominal independence. I am not the only observer that is amazed that this thing persists. Uh, and it is a question of how long it will. So if you look at the statistics from the 1960s or 70s, the bulk of these countries trade, right? Um, almost all of their exports went to France. The vast majority of their imports came from France. Much of the, in of, of the foreign investment uh, came from France. We've seen their trade and investment links diversify, right? Most of these countries now trade much more with China. France is still a disproportionately large share of their trade, but it is a declining share, right? So, you know, something like if it was 75% 50 years ago, it's closer to 10 or 15% now in, in many places. And, you know, with the recent coups, there's also a, a possibility that the, the strong military, political, and diplomatic links might also be starting to weaken. We've seen a few countries leave the kind of French fear. So uh, Mauritania and, and, and Madagascar, Mauritania was part of the CFA zone, Madagascar was not, but it was part of the overall larger franc zone, um, did leave. So, you know, it is, it's not unprecedented, although it's amazing that, you know, again, all of that happened 50 years ago, and, and some of these countries are still very closely linked to France. Um, you know, there's French military bases in places like Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal uh, and Niger. There's a lot of parallels with uh, the U.S. empire, although, of course, the U.S. is a much larger scale, but you know, the territorial angle in the U.S. has been kind of minimal. I mean, the U.S. is not shy about invading places and overthrowing governments, but direct ownership of the land is much less common. It's all this very capitalist uh, maintenance of, of hierarchy, not a real estate hierarchy. My family is uh, from the Dominican Republic, and I've thought a lot about the relationship between the Dominican Republic and the United States or United States and the larger kind of Latin American Caribbean region. And, you know, that's sort of why when I when I got to, to Senegal, my ears perked up because I was like, you know, I've, if I haven't seen this movie before, I've seen a, a close version of it, which is you don't need necessarily to plant your flag. Although, again, even in the U.S. case, you know, the, the U.S. did invade and, and occupy the Dominican Republic twice in the 20th century. So, you know, again, the, the kind of territorial military logic is always there. But, yeah, you can easily dominate countries uh, economically. To use the example of the Dominican Republic, you know, again, the U.S. is, is the Dominican Republic's major trading partner, and it's very asymmetric, right? So the U.S., the Dominican Republic depends on the U.S. for its exports and its imports, for remittances from people like my family who send money back home, for investment, American investors buying hotels and, and other businesses in the Dominican Republic, and Dominican trade investment uh, is basically a rounding error for the United States. The U.S. Embassy had plays an, uh, an outsized role in Dominican politics. The U.S. ambassador is a key a political player, less so than, than in the past. But, you know, you, you, this idea of informal empire is an old one, right? And in many ways, part of what I, I think I'll be arguing in the future is this sort of formal empire, the, the actual planting of the flag, this kind of territorial control is the anomaly. Historically, what we've seen is this sort of empire of free trade, um, this sort of informal imperialism, right? Think about the British in Argentina, again, the Americans in Latin America, parts of Asia and the French in, in, in West and Central Africa. I, I have a friend who argues, you know, uh, a French friend who argues that I, the reason I study the CFA is because it's one of the few parts of the world where the U.S. is not the bad guy. <laughs> yes, that's a nice thing. 
But as Noam Chomsky said to me once, most of the time you can rely on the IMF, but every now and then you have to send in the Marines. That's the uh, the American model. Yeah. Now, to be fair, the experience of stability has uh, been a bit of a selling point. So the countries that have left, uh, the countries that are not part of the CFA arrangement are not great advertisements for independence always. Yes. So, you know, this is the key debate whenever it comes. It's easy to criticize the CFA as a sort of colonial relic holdover. Uh, and then, of course, the defenders say, well, what would you replace it with? Um, there's plenty of African countries that have their own currencies that aren't you know, doing too well, that have obviously mismanaged them. And is getting rid of the CFA going to make things in any way better? Right. And, you know, the usual way that economists talk about monetary policy is kind of the inflation output trade off, expansionary monetary policy and fiscal policy. It boosts output, but increases inflation, contractionary policies contract the economy. They reduce inflation at the cost of lower output. Of course, here in the U.S., we're seeing things not quite line up with that story. And then for developing countries, you think about it as sort of a development stability trade-off, right? So you can either have low inflation, low growth, or high inflation, high growth, right? So stability is low inflation, low growth. Development would aim for high growth at the cost of kind of higher inflation. It is true that this, the, the CFA countries have had historically much lower inflation, uh, in some cases, even deflation, right? So if you look at some of these countries, prices actually have gone down in, in a few years. For anyone who is familiar with the global south or developing countries or the third world uh, is very rare. Right? <laughs> How often do you see prices go down? Usually the problem is sort of high, is high inflation and sometimes even hyperinflation. So the CFA countries have been remarkably stable and their growth records were sort of similar to the rest of Africa for a very long time. They have since started to fall back. You know, there's a big debate about is the poverty in Francophone Africa due to the French influence or did the French sort of merely get the core parts of the continent anyway? And while the British got the juicier morsels of that uh, magnificent African cake, as, as King Leopold called it. And then, you know, the question is, you know, if not the CFA, then what? The argument that, that then uh, me and others make is, you know, that the just having your own currency is not sufficient for development, but it is necessary, right? We've not seen a country develop without being able to use very active monetary policies, without being able to subsidize credit, right? You need to be able to channel uh, credit to, to, to preferred sectors in order to have any kind of industrial policy in countries in the global south. Maybe the CFA countries will be the first ones to do it, but historic, the historical record shows you kind of need your own currency. Uh, obviously, you still have to manage it well, design and implement good policies and have it be part of a larger package. Um, you know, this is actually one of the arguments that a lot of Marxists make, right, which is, yeah, the, the money stuff is important. The CFA is an embarrassment. But ultimately, the problems that these countries face are much bigger than that. And you would have to address not only the kind of financial structures, but also the productive structures of the economy. The fundamental problem is that if you're a small, poor, weak country that has been uh, distorted by a very long period of colonialism, it's really hard to mobilize the resources, physical and human, in order to uh, develop any kind of uh, independent uh, economy and develop it in any meaningful way. It's, it's just an enormous challenge. Absolutely. You know, especially for, um, you know, again, some of these countries have been very seriously exploited and are among the poorest in the world now. So, that's actually why many Pan-Africanists, uh, including myself, argue for maintaining some version of the CFA, some version of monetary union, because many of these economies are just too small to even try to industrialize, right? There's a scale problem. Um, you know, I would argue the kind of balkanization of Africa, the fact that there's you know, 54 or 55 states on the continent, which is you know, something like a quarter of the world's um, nation states, despite only having about a sixth of the world's um, population is part of the problem, right? Some of these economies are just, you know, to put it bluntly, just unviable. And what you would need to create a larger economic unit. Um, so it makes sense to try to turn the CFA into something that could be a vehicle for greater regional development. Um, the current structure, we argue, does not do that because it necessarily focuses on stability, and which means sort of restricting credit, keeping the banks from, from lending too much money to maintain the exchange rate, uh, instead of having a developmental goal, which, you know, I think is obvious to prioritize development, employment, economic growth in, in, in these places over kind of maintaining a low in, in inflation rate. Uh, obviously, it'd be nice to have the two. Um, you know, so when people talk about options for reforming this thing, you know, there's sort of a few things that get discussed. Uh, one is just the nationalist exit. Everyone create their own currency and go their own way, which, as we've discussed, all the other countries in Western Central Africa, the rest of the, the continent, 
have their own currencies, hasn't served many of them very well, hasn't served most of them very well. You could move the peg to a basket of currencies that reflects uh, Western Central Africa's trading partners, right? So include the the, the yuan, include the, the U.S. dollar uh, and have it instead of just the sort of euro. Or, you know, you could move towards a kind of looser uh, arrangement similar to the European monetary system of the 1980s, where the CFA would become a kind of regional unit of account and each country would have its own national exchange rate, but then you would have the, the, the flexibility to adjust it, right? So it'd be a kind of fixed but adjustable exchange rate. And that argument comes about from the idea that, you know, from looking at what happened in the Eurozone, which said, you know, which one of the big lessons for the left there was you don't want to have a single monetary policy, single monetary zone, a single central bank without having a fiscal union, without having, you know, one kind of tax authority that's able to redistribute. So the goal for, for Pan-Africanists would be a kind of United States of Africa that would be able to do those kind of fiscal transfers the same way that, you know, Washington transfers money from wealthy states like Connecticut or New York to poorer states like Alabama. Short of that, then maintaining some form of monetary union, pooling your reserves, which is, you know, one of the things the CFA does now, all the countries, the eight in West Africa and the six in Central Africa, put all of their foreign reserves, all of their euros that they've gained from, from exports and foreign investment and borrowing all in one pot. You know, maintaining those forms of solidarity, having a kind of regional payments union so you can save on um, using dollars and, and euros to, to uh, settle trade among each other. But then having, you know, if you're not going to have a, a, a straight up you know, United States of Africa and fiscal transfers and, you know, maintaining some ability to, to change the exchange rate between Cote d'Ivoire and Burkina Faso or, you know, Togo and Benin, just to make sure that the imbalances don't get too large and you don't end up in a situation like the Eurozone where you have divergence among members, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and it creates all kinds of political problems and tensions and resentment. And finally, the coup in Niger, which is uh, directed in large part against France. What do you make of that? You know, I still think it's way too early to tell. Um, you know, people are very excited on the internet because they've seen, you know, these, these coup leaders have used anti-imperialist rhetoric. They've threatened to break with France, kick the French out like the military junta did in, in uh, Mali and, and uh, Burkina Faso, and then you know, sort of create um, a larger alliance with, um, you know, anti-Western, uh, anti-imperialist states like Russia, um, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Iran. Uh, I think it's still too way too early to tell. Uh, I would love for that to be the case, for these countries to become more autonomous and independent and start investing in their people and become, again, more just, uh, equal and, and prosperous. But we've seen um, military leaders use this kind of an anti-imperialist rhetoric before. You know, we've seen coup plotters use this kind of grandiose, make these kind of grandiose promises. You know, in, in my opinion, I think a lot about the, the, the case of Secretary in, in Guinea, uh, who is lauded in, in Western circles, especially, um, um, you know, among Black nationalists and Pan-Africanists for, for, for being a, a critic of, of imperialism, for you know, hosting Miriam Makiba and, you know, Stokely Carmichael, you know, renamed himself Kwame Ture, Ture is after Sekou Ture, right? Mary Makiba lived in Guinea, Ami Kakabra, right? So, you know, a very important part, but also, you know, very much an authoritarian, very dictatorial, and never completely broke with the West, right? So a self-declared Marxist-Leninist, um, but still allowed French and American investments in Guinea's bauxite industry, right? So it's too early to say. I hope um, that this is a potential for a new beginning, that this means a, a, a break with French imp- neocolonialism and, and imperialism, but who knows? Well, it seems like not much is gained if you trade a, uh, a corrupt bourgeoisie with ties to the colonial power for a corrupt bourgeoisie with its own nationalist ambitions that still can't really deliver the goods. Exactly. The example people point to is, um, again, Thomas Sankara in, in Burkina Faso took power in 1983 and then in a military coup. You know, the Western press is all in a tizzy about how uh, illegitimate the, you know, these governments are when many of these democratic governments are no more legitimate, right? They're al- almost as dictatorial and authoritarian as the governments that are, that, that are replacing them by military coups. So, and that is part of the problem, right, is that these democratic governments are themselves not very legitimate, not very inclusive. Power tends to be held by a small group of people. It becomes a kind of winner-takes-all system. So, you know, people point to Sankara and say, you know, he was trying to, to do something, um, you know, was trying to build some version of socialism, right? Invested a lot in uh, education and health programs uh, and gender equality. And, and then again, was, you know, sadly overthrown um, in 1987. 
by uh, a French-supported coup that put in place his former right-hand man who was in power for 27 years, Blas Compaoré. But it's hard to tell. Like, we can tell in retrospect, like, Sankara, despite his flaws, despite his regime's problems, was trying to do something for the people of Burkina Faso and is still admired, right? The the current military leadership there is, is definitely using his name as a symbol. But the proof is in, is in the pudding, right? We'll see what actually transpires. Um, you know, it, as you said, if it's just changing, you know, military alliances, that's bad news for the French, but not necessarily good news for the people of Niger. I was Francisco Perez, assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah and a senior economist with the Center for Economic Democracy. You can find out more about the CED's Economics for Emancipation popular education project at economicsforemancipation.net. That's the number four, not the spelled out preposition four. That's economics for number four, emancipation.net. Over the last few years, there have been reforms to the CFA franc, which Perez argues in his paper on the topic are largely cosmetic. A new name, the ECHO, from the Economic Community of West African States, and a reduction in the French presence on the governing boards of the local central banks. But the fundamentals of the arrangement, the pegging of the exchange rate to the euro and the line of credit to the French treasury, remain. And even though French President Emmanuel Macron has called the CFA franc a crime against humanity, and said on a recent visit to Burkina Faso that I'm from a generation that does not come and tell Africa what to do, he hasn't really put those words into action. Nor has he renounced France's propensity for military action in Africa. And he still says things like Africa's problems are civilizational. So we'll see where this reform project goes. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Soweto Blues by Miriam Makeba. Her name came up in my interview with Francisco Perez because Seiko Touré offered her refuge when he was president of Guinea. Next, the coup in Niger. On July 26th, a group led by General Abdurrahmane Tahani, apologies for my pronunciation issues there, deposed the country's pro Western president, Mohamed Bazoum. This followed earlier coups in recent years in Mali and Burkina Faso, like Niger, CFA, Franc countries. Coup leaders in all three countries have cited persistent poverty and underdevelopment as reasons for their actions. Mali and Burkina Faso both threw French troops out of their country shortly after the coups. Niger's direction is unclear. Early signs are that the new government will follow a similar path. They've already shut their airspace to U.S. drones. Here with more is Caitlin Chandler. Previously an editor at Africa is a Country, she's a journalist who covers, among other things, security, human rights, and migration issues. Her article on the U.S. presence in Niger was in the December 2022 issue of Harper's. Caitlin Chandler. This coup in Niger is really hard to interpret. What's your understanding of what it's all about? I think it's important to note that democracy has always been rather fragile in Niger. So the coup didn't come about from a completely unexpected place. People who are following domestic policies and politics in Niger had different inklings that there could be a coup. And in fact, there were two coup attempts prior to this one. But basically, from what I understand, um, Abdurrahman Chani, who was the head of President Bazoum's presidential guard, uh, intervened and instated military rule. 
And do we understand the politics behind it? Is it just personal ambition or is there something larger than that? So we're still waiting to see what comes out from interviews on the ground in Niamey. There have been different theories that have been circulating. So one is that Bazoum planned to replace Chani was someone else. And so he intervened to stage a coup. But I think it's really too early at this point to say exactly why the coup transpired. Now, there's a lot of anti-colonial, particularly anti-French rhetoric. How seriously should we take that? I think we should take the anti-colonial rhetoric very seriously. When, When I was in Niger in 2021 reporting this piece for Harper's, many Nigerians expressed anger and resentment towards the French who were the former colonizer there. And they saw the presence of French troops as, in some ways, a continuation of that colonial legacy. Let's talk some about what you reported on for that Harper's piece. Um, Niger became, as well as some of its neighbors, became a front on the, in the global war on terror back in the George W. days. How'd that develop? What, what was happening there that uh, inspired this interest in the part of the anti-terrorist gang? Sure. Well, one of the things that I emphasized in my article, and which I think is really remarkable, is that when the U.S. got involved in Niger and in the Sahel, there actually was no terrorism at the time, or what we would now think of as an international terrorist threat. So the story of how the U.S. got involved really stems from the expansion of the U.S. military after the end of the Cold War and the desire of the U.S. military, which had a headquarters and continues to have in Germany, looking to see where they could extend their programming outward. And one of the areas that they settled on was the Sahel. And it was argued that due to the vast landscape and the fact that you had a lot of open borders and ungoverned territory, that it would be prime for a terrorist group to emerge. But there was no terrorist threat at the time. And so then what has happened over the last 20 years is that the U.S., uh, along with European countries, have poured a tremendous amount of money into training and equipping many of the different armies in the Sahel. And that appears to the detriment of efforts to find other ways to negotiate conflict as well as to support democracy. Now, the disorder that followed the coup against Gaddafi made things uh, a little more complicated, right? Yes. So one of the things that happened after Gaddafi was killed is that fighters who had been employed by him um, in Libya returned home to Mali. And there, some of them were instrumental in fermenting unrest that eventually led to a war. This is the same war that France intervened in and became engaged in uh, around 2013, and that the U.S. also decided to send troops to the area to assist the French effort although the U.S. has always said that troops were not actively engaged in combat effort, but uh, U.S. bases were helping supply French planes with fuel, were sharing intelligence, um, and obviously sharing drone-related information. There's a, like, it seems like a veritable U.N. of foreign soldiers involved or present in the country. Um, you know, who's there and why? Yes, there are, you know, there were at least 10 different uh, representatives of different foreign countries. There were 10 different kinds of troops and armies that I saw when I was actually on the ground uh, in Niamey and Walam. And there are many different reasons. I think one of the key things to keep in mind is that Niger possesses a high amount of natural resources, such as uranium. And the U.S. military has actually been quite vocal in its reports to Congress in talking about how these resources in the Sahel and West Africa are important to protect for U.S. interests. Another reason that so many of the European armies are there, in addition to quote-unquote fighting terrorism, is that they would like to stop migration from the north of Niger to Libya and then onward to Italy and to the rest of Europe. So one of the key migration pathways uh, through West Africa had been through Agadez in the north, uh, which is a city I visited when I was there. But starting a few years ago, after the 2016 refugee crisis, the EU started giving a tremendous amount of money to the Nigerian government to seal its border. And so what used to be a sort of open migratory pathway started to become policed and people had to take more dangerous journeys to try to reach Libya and Europe. What exactly is the U.S. up to there? It's uh, some sort of a a model for um, the war on terror after um, Afghanistan. What's the U.S trying to do there or thinks it's trying to do there or actually doing there? 
Well, one of the things that I hope to point out in the piece that I wrote for Harper's was just how incoherent the U.S. strategy in Niger is. Um, when you look at what the U.S. military says that it's doing, which is to you know assisting the Nigerians to fight uh, terrorist violence, and then you look at where the U.S. military actually has the bulk of its operations, which is very far from where the conflict uh, has been located and is all the way in the north in Agadez, you have to question what is the long-term objective of the U.S. military. And from what I saw, you know, this massive drone base that the U.S. has installed in Agadez, it appears primarily used to send drones north to Libya. So it seems in some ways that Niger is a convenient place for the U.S. to have drone bases, which allow it to have a greater opportunity to surveil a greater part of the African continent. And then a lesser objective would be that they're concerned about violence in the border between Mali and Niger. Now, climate change is really uh, wreaking havoc on the region, right? Uh, promoting sorts of uh, all sorts of conflicts over very basic resources. Yes, conflict change is definitely accelerating sort of a crisis over resources. And one of the issues in Niger is that the desert is encroaching into what was formerly farmable land. So there have been conflicts that have broken out in the last decade between farmers and herders who are competing over, you know, where animals can graze or where people can grow things. And this is one of the reasons why in the piece I spoke with Bubakar Diallo, who is a local conflict negotiator, because I felt that the work his organization was doing was really important in brokering disputes and trying to figure out how to allocate resources so that people can feed their families. So it's really a a foretaste of the future. I mean, this whole sort of thing is only going to get worse over time. Oh, no, it's, it's certainly going to get worse over time. And I think one of my frustrations as an American journalist who was there reporting was just how difficult it was to get information from the U.S. government about its policies and strategies. So when I was in Agadez, for instance, I requested multiple times to have access to the Air Force drone base to try to get a better understanding of our operations there, but was just repeatedly denied access. So I think it's concerning also if we don't know exactly what the U.S. military operations look like in Niger. I'm speaking with the journalist Caitlin Chandler. Well, yeah, the uh, the military has made it clear that they, they view climate change as a real threat to global stability. But uh, and so it would seem that's just be an important place to study where they're up to. But uh, they want to uh, keep it uh, behind closed doors. Yes. And one of the journalists that I spoke with in Agadez, who runs um, an investigative outlet there, Ibrahim Diallo, he was saying that putting this huge drone base in Agadez all the way in the north of the country was, it was like if you have your right arm broken and you put a bandage on your left arm. So it was incomprehensible also to Nigerians what the U.S. strategy was. And that's also a reason why there were rumors circulating in Agadez that you know, the drone base was actually cover for smuggling gold out of the country. Now, that's a rumor. That's obviously not something that's at all substantiated, but it shows that distrust can really ferment when there's not access to information and when Nigerians themselves aren't provided with access to this information. Even though 20 years ago, terrorism was not a problem uh, when uh, Niger was brought into the war on terror, there are now a couple of Islamist militant groups causing trouble, aren't there? Who are they and what are they up to? Yeah, so there are there are several different groups. And part of that stems from the chaos in Mali that happened after Gaddafi was killed um, that led to war in Mali. In Niger, I think the conflicts between herders and farmers that we were speaking about just a moment ago, that sort of fed into some young men being recruited to join terrorist networks in the border area. But the scale of some of these groups has been occasionally blown out of proportion. So they have caused serious violence and are a real threat to Nigerians and also uh, to Nigerian stability. But at the same time, the framing of all of the conflict in the area as terrorist has sort of obscured what can be local grievances and local solutions uh, to some of these conflicts. But if you uh, set up a drone base, uh, that kind of uh, uh, limits your options. It seems it's, you know, you just have nothing but a military approach uh, to what uh, could be very complex local problems. 
Well, one of the things Nigerians kept asking me was actually why the U.S. military, given the huge drone bases, because the U.S. actually has three drone bases, one maintained by the CIA and two by the military. Uh, But several Nigerians asked me why the U.S. drones actually hadn't been more effective in preventing uh, violent attacks in the Niger-Mali border area called Tillaberry. And, you know, it seemed like the primary reason was that the U.S. drones are not actively engaged in this area. But again, they're in another part of the country and they're gathering possibly other information and they weren't actually being used in Tillaberry. So that was also sort of confounding to many Nigerians. And it's hard to tell whether this is something sinister or just they don't know what they're doing. I felt from my time there that it was really a combination of things. I think in part it is sort of a continuation of this imperial policy that the more drone bases and the more military bases we have around the world, the better. And in Niger, at least, there didn't seem to have been at a higher level a real frank or informed discussion about how effective the U.S. policy was. You know, I also spoke with someone who used to work for the State Department over a decade ago who was really frustrated that earlier efforts to invest more in human rights, in conflict mediation, um, in Nigerian civil society, that those had been swept under the rug and that training and equipping the Nigerian military and, and other militaries in the area, sorry, in the region, had become the priority of the U.S. government. Did you see much of a French presence uh, when you were there? I didn't interview or speak with the French soldiers directly while I was there, but when I visited the U.S. Special Forces base in Walam, which is about uh, an hour and a half north of Niamey in Tilaberi, where this conflict uh, has occurred between Mali and Niger, the Mali and Niger border, there were some uh, French soldiers on the U.S. Special Forces base, just as you know liaisons. And the U.S. Special Forces told me that they meet regularly with their French counterparts and. The U.S. government has also signaled a, a close cooperation with the French. But we don't know what they're really doing. <laughs> well, yes, it's difficult to get precise information. But, you know, one of the things both the French and the U.S. have done is really build up and train these Nigerian special forces. That was an initiative that the French undertook, um, I think, over 10 years ago that the Americans participated in. And what the U.S. special forces told me they do in Niger, one of the things they do is to support remotely when Nigerian special forces go out on mission. And I think I had questions that appear in the piece around, you know, where are the lines of accountability and who exactly is giving orders on some of those missions? And it's very difficult to get information about that. U.S. soldiers are obviously not implicated if something goes wrong on one of those missions, but how quickly they're able to respond to casualties among Nigerian forces or how much they're actually pulling the strings, you know, behind the operation was unclear. But one of the people who the U.S. soldiers repeatedly told me that I needed to speak to was General Barmu, who was the head of the Nigerian Special Forces. And he is one of the people who apparently participated in the coup and is currently part of the the military government in Niger now. So the basically the key, one of the key U.S partners in the Nigerian government did participate in in the recent coup. If this coup holds, do you think the U.S. is going to continue to be welcome? And the, um, they're not being very friendly to Victoria Newland, who wants to talk to them. No, it uh, doesn't seem like they're really all that very pro-American. It doesn't seem like they're pro-American, but at the same time, people in these situations will cut deals. And at least the statements coming out of the Biden administration have not been that strong in terms of condemning the coup. And I think it will be interesting to see what the U.S. negotiates, but there doesn't seem to be any indication that the U.S. military wants to give up, for instance, this drone base in Agadez, which they have invested over $100 million in building. The U.S. also has a drone base near the Niamey International Airport that they share with some European countries, and I don't think they want to abandon that either. So we'll have to see in the next few weeks how it unfolds. And now there's a lot of talk about the Russian presence. The Wagner Group is on uh, in the country. Um, what, do, what do you make of that? So I'm careful not to, to speculate about Russia at this point, because I think we just don't have enough information. The Wagner Group is present in Burkina Faso and Mali, and their paramilitary 
soldiers have been linked to atrocities and large-scale human rights abuses. But at this point, we don't have concrete information that they're operating in Niger. It will be something to pay attention to, though, in terms of how Niger proceeds over the next few weeks and months, whether that's something that they invite in. It's funny. Nobody else seemed very shy about speculating on what Russia's up to, but uh, it's nice to see you uh, hold on to your integrity in this department. Well, I think for the American media, it obviously makes a, a compelling story to say that, you know, we've now ceded influence to Russia in the Sahel, but um, there are many factors at play there, including the domestic politics. So I don't want to overemphasize the influence of, of Russia or the U.S. either. That was the journalist Caitlin Chandler. Her website is CaitlinLChandler.com. CaitlinLChandler.com. The U.S. is deeply invested in Niger. In March, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken called Niger a model of democracy, even though his department's latest human rights report had this to say. Significant human rights issues included credible reports of unlawful or arbitrary killings, including extrajudicial killings by or on behalf of the government, harsh and life-threatening prison conditions, arbitrary arrest or detention, serious restrictions on free expression in media, including unjustified arrests or prosecutions of journalists, and the existence of criminal libel laws, and lack of investigation of and accountability for gender-based violence, including but not limited to domestic or intimate partner violence and child early and forced marriage. By the way, Intercept reporter Nick Turris counts 14 U.S. trained officers as having participated in coups in West Africa since 2008. That training is no guarantee of loyalty, though. Several of them have turned against Washington. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Once we go out with this, some of the theme and variations in D minor by Johannes Brahms, his piano transcription of a movement from his first sextet for strings, is performed by Emmanuel Axe. Till next week, bye. Mm-hmm.